Yeah, on. Hey, 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 Badada, yeah, Badada, yeah, yeah. That was a little uh, Howard the Duck there. I don't know if you caught that little Howard the Duck. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great uses of yeah is in the Howard the Duck theme song. By the way, do you th- how many people out- do you think out there are saying, what in the hell is Howard the Duck? Well, if they are, they really should go find out. But was that an amazing movie or was it a horrendous movie? Or I mean, what? how, how do we kind of land on the Howard the Duck thing? I mean, obviously, you know, we had, we had Ed Ro- Principal Ed Rooney, you know, as one of the, one of the stars of that film which has made it age sort of interesting, but is that a good one? Was that a bad one? Where does that rank? Man, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, I, I feel like maybe it was honestly, terrible. I don't know. Honestly, man, like I don't remember a lot about it because I haven't revisited Howard the duck a lot. And so I don't really know how it holds up or has stood the last, you know, 20 years of time because I do remember watching it as a kid and kind of thinking it was funny and cute, and it's it's got like a really hot chick in it, right? Isn't it like who's the chick that Howard the Duck like, you know, gets romantic with? Is that Elizabeth Shue? Maybe. Well, the Shoe is—I mean, she's an '80s legend, by the way. That's Adventures in Babysitting. I know that. If the Shoe is in Howard the Duck, that then I will say it's it's worth anybody's. Which, time. by the way, we showed you know uh, my my two my eight year old and six year old. We did a screening of adventures and babysitting just actually a few nights ago and uh big hit big hit in the household a little bit proud of that from a parent standpoint a hell of a movie there's actually a new version that uh our girls have watched so it's interesting that we were kind of on the same wave oh is there like a reboot of it or yeah yeah there's like a remake of it but as i told the entire car during this conversation if it doesn't have the shoe in it (laughs) i i want no part of it I mean, the shoe is the like the ultimate '80s babe, right? I mean, come on, she'd definitely definitely be a top fiver. Oh, phenomenal! And uh, and like, I love how she has the the douchey boyfriend with the douchey car, and and you know, Kenneth and uh, and the brother get their revenge on him at the end. I mean, it, it's 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 pretty solid. It's a lot of good, a lot of good '80s movie themes going on there in uh, Adventures and Babysitting, but. Listen, uh, you know, this isn't a podcast about 80s films. If it was, we could probably carry on quite a bit about uh, the shoe and about Adventures of Babysitting in particular. But what this actually is, is episode 33. You know, I was debating during the Herb intro, um, you know, always good to hear Herb. If, you know, I was going to go with uh, like a, I guess I went with Howard the Duck, you know, dropping the yes. But I was maybe going to also go with a yeah, 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 because, and by the way, that was the Beatles. I don't know if you you did that. Did that come through? That was a little, she loves you. Yes. In fact, I'm going to say, I'm assuming you're going with Beatles there just, just to make sure. I don't think there's another 
signature use of yeah, 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 quite like that. <laughs> the reason why it was either between an 80s movie reference or a Beatles reference is because a lot of people think that tonight's group were truly the Beatles of this genre known as new school hip hop and something that really kind of emerged in the, you know, early to mid eighties and was really spawned by this record and spawned by this group, this trio, you know, that has proven to be, you know, highly, highly influential over time. Let me just give you a a few tidbits here of who we're talking about tonight. So let's just give the quick accolades here. First hip hop act to have a music video on MTV. Second ever to appear on American Bandstand. The first was the Sugar Hill Gang. The first ever to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. The first to perform at a major festival event, which was Live Aid. And the first to be nominated for a Grammy Award. They had the first number one R&B charting hip hop album. They were the first hip hop artist with a top 10 pop charting album. They were the first to perform at a major arena. They were the first to sign a major product endorsement. Who'd they sign with again, Nub? My Adidas. There you go, baby. And they were the second hip hop act to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The first was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. We're talking about Run DMC. We're talking about their debut album. But first, what do you say we go around and round? Nubs, three albums on the radar, buddy. What do you got? We've talked previously that I'm very picky uh, about a couple artists. The, the primary band being U2. I'm like super picky about my U2. You know, some stuff I think is brilliant and, and really listenable and other stuff is just like would never waste my time on it. I am supremely picky about my Bob Dylan. You know, I think there's some Dylan stuff that's just remarkable and interesting and you know should last forever and then there's dylan stuff that just really probably should have never been made the album desire is my first round and round and that would certainly fall under the category of the good stuff and this is when he was electric and you know playing more as a band and with a band this is from 1976 this has hurricane which is you know one of dylan's most famous songs and it's sort of right around that time, too, of the uh, gospel era, I think came right after this. And I love like when Dylan became a Christian and, and it has nothing to do with the lyrics or any of that crap, but it has everything to do with just the inspiration that he had and the, the, the kind of like the, the glorious aspect of those albums, the three albums he made when he was sort of dabbling in religion. And, but Desire kind of came before that. And uh, it, to me, it's one of the best Dylan albums. With that, too, just kind of a couple more obscure progressive things. Uh, the second album by Curved Air called Second Album. And uh, th- this is really good prog stuff uh, from the UK with female vocals. Uh, Sonia Christian, who's, you know, one of the more, I-, I think, kind of revered vocalists from the prog scene. And then uh, the album from Camel, 1974's Mirage. 
just sort of when Camel was really on fire and it's it's right in the kind of midst of the prog heyday. And that's an album worth checking out. It's probably a band that not a ton of people are familiar with, but Mirage by Camel is a great introduction to that band's sound and some great obscure prog stuff from the mid-1970s. So that's what's round and round for me, T. What is round and round for you? Interesting stuff. Feels like you're maybe going through a little winter prog phase, if I had to guess, but uh, nothing wrong with that. I've got the new record by Zifu Fighters. Uh, this is called Medicine at Midnight. Uh, you know, I haven't absorbed it fully, but uh, working on it. And uh, I know you've been listening to it too, Nub. So, um, but hey, you know, anytime these guys bring something new, new rock record, um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for everybody. So looking forward to continuing to get to know that one. Uh, the second is by the uh, British funk uh, uh, group from the 70s, uh, Hot Chocolate. And this is called Everyone's a Winner. They had some great stuff. You know, obviously most people know them for a uh, You Sexy Thing and, you know, a couple uh, of their other kind of more well-known songs. But th- these guys put together some good albums, a uh, good group, um, you know, bringing that, that, that really kind of authentic funk there in the uh, late 70s and, and good stuff from Hot Chocolate. Everyone's a winner. The third is uh, something mildly different uh, out of uh, our friends to the north, and that is the uh, trio known as Rush. Uh, and this is their, uh, record. And, you know, I always go through different phases right now. Grace under pressure, just kind of that conversion into eighties rush. Um, I really do like that eighties rush era, uh, and grace under pressure is a great kind of era from that time period for that band. So see, what's your favorite track on grace under pressure? I'm all, I, this is a great rush conversation because it, it's definitely a transition album for them. And there's a lot of, there's super diverse sounds on it. So what's your favorite track on that one? I mean, I have always been pretty partial to Red Sector A and, and that sort of comes from really their, their live record, the show of hands record, because, you know, I, I didn't really think a ton of that song, but as you dig into eighties rush and as you sort of dig into a show of hands, which really captures them in that era very nicely you know this is when getty was rocking the steinberger and you know as you know and and, and neil was getting more into some of the electronic drum stuff which some rush fans didn't like but i particularly loved i think that you know the the sort of pulsating nature of red sector a i think it you know lyrically it's a really interesting um, tune and it was one of those you know it was on chronicles but you weren't sort of as into it kind of early in your rush era as some of the other songs but i think the more you get to know that one and especially after you hear it live a few times you know for me that that really became a rush favorite so how about you definitely distant early warning yeah i just it, it, yeah. It, that would be in to me that's like in the rush canon of songs and the rest of the album is it's a really interesting album to listen to from rush it's that mix of you know, kind of them dabbling in the keyboards and a lot of things you mentioned. But yeah, I think the opening track is is still my favorite. It's a good live song too. You know, they didn't, they didn't play it a ton in their later years, but when they did, it was always really good. Well, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that choice. And, you know, part of what made Rush special is that, they, you know, they never really did things in a calculated way. You know, I I, I never felt like they were 
doing something just because it was that time period. I mean, anytime you have a sort of multi-decade faceted band, you kind of run that risk of, you know, are we jumping on the current fad? Are we utilizing this certain style because it's what's selling or it's what people are listening to right now, et cetera. And one of the, the reasons why I think Rush was able to pull their different eras and their different sort of genres within those eras off is because it was always done in a pretty non-calculated, pretty authentic way where it was more about, you know, maybe kind of realizing the lane that they wanted to be in, but also being very true to their sound and true to what they are. And there is no better example of something that was extremely authentic. You know, part of what makes tonight's album so noteworthy is the fact that I think what has given it its legacy and sort of what has given this group its legacy was the authentic nature of what they were doing. You know, it was very easy during the early hip hop stage where things were pretty glammed up, right? They were, it was about kind of funk and disco and club music and those type of things. And a lot of the early rap and hip hop was sort of stemming off of that. And tonight's group run DMC was the first to sort of come around and say, you know, listen, we're going to sort of de-glam this genre. You know, we're going to move it away from something that has been a little bit more dressed up, a little bit more calculated and enter new school hip hop. Now there were a lot of things. I mean, I listed already a bunch of the accolades, you know, before round and round of what sort of came out of this, but, you know, turning hip hop into a business, right? The, the power of branding within hip hop, you know, like I said, sort of de-glamming this whole genre, which to this point had been, you know, something that was more dressed up and taking it more bare bones. Run DMC became the first hip hop group to achieve a gold record. And then the follow-up, which was called Raising Hell, went multi-platinum. So this was, you know, it's easy now to kind of think that this is just sort of old school or this is just something that's kind of fun to go back and revisit. But at the time, Within its genre, there were a few things that were as important historically. Ice-T said that this paved the way for everybody into being able to make rap albums, not just singles. So obviously it's a record and a group with a lot of acclaim, and rightly so. But I think part of the reason why they were able to achieve that was because they stripped things down, they went sort of back to basics kind of created this new wave of hip hop music out of the East coast, which really caught on. I do think the Beatles comparison is, is pretty dead on. And I, I, everything tonight in episode 33 should probably come with the important caveat that who am I, you know, a white kid from the suburbs to make large scale commentary on what run DMC really meant. Right. Because there's a little bit of self-consciousness there and it might be a little pretentious for, for me to, to try and make a lot of claims about their standing when probably the experience of, for a white kid in the suburbs was a lot different. 
than it was for somebody who is really authentically experiencing this as a cultural movement, right? Because that's what it really was. But the thing I like about the Beatles comparison is that Run DMC came along and they did it kind of harder than everybody. They did it in a way that connected with everybody. And they did it in a way that was overtly commercial, but also incredibly creative. That's the Beatles as well. You know, the Beatles didn't invent rock music by any means, but they did come along and play it louder and heavier and with more grit and a little more sort of blue collar than everybody else. And that connected with people and it reinvented a genre. It didn't necessarily create one, but it reinvented one. And that's sort of what Run DMC did. Run DMC did not invent hip hop, right? I mean, you got to look at the old school to do that. And that's Grandmaster Flash and Sugar Hill Gang and what Curtis Blow and like just people in that kind of world, right? But they, they took it and they elevated it. So I see them as elevators, just like the Beatles were. So I like the comparison. I think it's pretty true. And also Run DMC had a pretty short life as well, and as did the Beatles. You know, relatively speaking, and they were both very prolific. So I dig the comparison. I think it works. It's a great point because Run DMC never claimed to be pioneers. You know, they 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 could history if if they were to, you know, sort of want to contribute toward their own narrative, it would be very easy for them to say, we came out and we were doing everything original and you know, we, we invented this whole scene and this whole genre, but what you typically hear them say, and it's very fascinating because they could easily take credit is, you know, that they were just doing what they saw kind of taking place around Hollis Queens at the time, which were a lot of hip hop parties, a lot of hip hop events. And what they kind of felt like was that a lot of these acts were putting on these you know, crazy good performances. And then they would sort of get into the studio or get into the hands of a manager or get into the hands of a costume designer or whatever it may be. And that they would kind of lose their energy and their minimalism and their style. And they weren't able to sort of recreate that on tape. What Run DMC sort of decided is, look, we're going to strip this down. It really starts with Russell Simmons, who even before Def Jam and even before he met Rick Rubin was a guy in Hollis, Queens, you know, which was a sort of drug ridden city with basically people for the most part, either going hardcore and making money off running heroin or tiptoeing and making money off selling weed. You know, Russell Simmons says he was more of one of the weed guys. But, you know, was focused and driven and ended up at City College and basically during that time discovered this underground hip hop scene, which existed. And he became very passionate about these hip hop parties and things that were taking place at night. And you mentioned it, Nubs, uh, you know, the first artist that he ever not only hosted a, a, a hip hop party with the City College audience. Um, for, but, but also he eventually became this artist manager that was Curtis Blow. And, you know, Curtis Blow had a single called Christmas Rappin', which is obviously a phenomenal track and kind of realized that there was something to this. 
and was able to kind of promote and grow Curtis Blow into a artist that was being played on the radio and having huge turnout for his performances. And, you know, Russell Simmons kind of saw that there's something to this. And at that time, as I said, things were very different. I mean, these artists were, you know, if you look at old performances of Curtis Blow, he was on top of the pops. It's a great clip on YouTube. You know, they're wearing checkered suits and it's a very light, upbeat sound. I mean, this was Africa Bombata and Grandmaster Flash and, and Curtis Blow and some of these artists that were doing more of the disco funk thing that included rap, but it really hadn't sort of digged down into this sound of the street. And Russell Simmons knew that. So he knew that these artists were putting out something good and putting out something important, but knew that there was still a way to kind of create this next step of authenticity and this next step of really sounding like the street. And in conjunction with his younger brother, Joey Run Simmons, and a couple guys that Joey knew, that was certainly the genesis of creating more of this street sound and this street authenticity with this group that would develop known as run DMC. So Joey Simmons, the younger brother of Russell, he DJed with Curtis blow. You know, his connection with Russell was really the beginning of this. He had a buddy that he used to rap with named Daryl who otherwise became known as DMC. You know, he grew up in New York city. He went to rice high school. Then he went to St. John's university, which you hear referenced later in a couple of their tracks. Very influenced by Grandmaster Flash, started off as a DJ, which all three of these guys did. And Joey and Daryl kind of established, established this rap partnership and they, they were kind of setting out to, you know, get out there within Hollis Queens and make sure that, you know, in some way they could be heard. And they lucked out one day and stumbled upon a guy who was sort of an up and coming DJ in the area whose name was Jason William Mizzle, who obviously became known as Jam Master J, who was one of the more kind of well-known talented DJs in the Hollis Queens area. He learned how to crossfade at a young age. He was a big time B-boy, which is kind of that breakdancing scene within Two Fifths Park and some of those areas within Hollis. And he had the equipment. He had the Technic 1200s, which he sort of practiced on and, and established his craft. And the cool thing about Jam Master J Nubs is like, this is a guy that just wanted to be a part of the band, as he said, right? He, you know, he, he had played bass. He had played keyboards. He had actually played live drums in a few, you know, bands that were even more in sort of a rock punk direction, you know, before really digging into pursuing kind of his DJ career and his DJ craft. So it's really interesting. It seems like Jam Master J was just one of these guys that just kind of wanted to be in a band, wanted to start a band. And I think that's where you get into a lot of this fusion stuff with Run DMC of combining rock and combining pop and, and taking things in a different direction. You know, these were guys that wanted to be a music group, you know, not just a, a collection of rappers. And I think that, that these two guys meeting Jam Master J and kind of having that philosophy of let's be a band, let's be unique, let's combine different genres, let's combine different styles was probably a big part of kind of the magic that existed once these three guys initially made contact with each other. 
Jam Master J, you know, musician, right? And that's probably a a tag that wasn't given to him enough during his, you know, all too short life. Um, but he was a, a real musician, keen understanding of rhythm and of melody. And, you know, DJing will give that to you. You know, D- there's, there's two different types of being a DJ. You know, there's, a, there's DJs that play the right music at the right time, and they usually end up going doing weddings, you know, things like that. And then there's DJs who are artists. And that was certainly Jam Master J. And the fact that he is, was a true musician just boosted what he brought to the table for these guys. So, you know, like any band, like any group, it, it's a product of the people that are in it. And the chemistry among the three, you know, is legendary. But what Jam Master J brought to the table is, I think, really was the missing piece that once it was there, made Run DMC what it really became. So he, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit for sure. No question. And the, and the vision from these guys once they got together was tremendous because, again, this was a scene where it was all about sampling. It was all about, you know, sort of looping musicality over beats and creating more of this disco funk, you know, almost pop sort of sound through rap. I mean, you're talking about tracks like The Message and Planet Rock. I mean, these were these were looped, catchy, uh, dancey club type tracks. And these guys decided, you know, they wanted to kind of execute what was sort of a product of their own influences. And these influences were pretty underground and pretty deep. So while these guys clearly eventually became commercial, the original intent was to be pretty stripped down and pretty minimalist. You know, let's get a big drum machine sound. Let's not only just rap over it, but let's be rap vocalists over it. And that's where Daryl and that's where Simmons really brought the magic. You know, they didn't need these fancy loops or fancy melodies underneath to, to really kind of create the sound that they were looking for in the studio and create kind of the magic of this rather unprecedented sound. So then you couple this, this innovative sound with this innovative approach. Because, you know, as I kind of mentioned from the onset, the branding, the look, you know, they called it the hood uniform. I mean, these, they called it sort of the Hollis uniform, you know, of Adidas suits and shoes and Kangol hats and big shoes with fat laces or no laces. I mean, yeah, but what do you really think about when you think about the outfit? What stands out? The chains. Sure. That's what I think about when I think of Run DMC. Of course. The big old thick gold chains. The the chains were quality, no question. But you know, this was a this was a very authentic look. It's kind of like this is the look that we're used to. And R and B and rap around that time, I mean, it was colorful leather and foxtails and belts and cowboy hats and all kinds of crazy stuff. And this was a, this is what we are. This is stripped down. This is the, like I said, hood uniform and away they went. And they not only created some really important music, but they also created a really important look and a really important vibe. So why don't we get to it as we dig into these 
Nerdy deets. Yeah, done dirt cheap. Go. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Run DMC was released on March 27th, 1984. The full album was preceded by basically a double A-side single of It's Like That and Sucka MCs, which were both tracks that would appear on the record, and that came out about a year prior in 1983. That single sold 5 million copies. To this day, it's one of the largest selling singles of all time. So right away, you know, people really caught on with this sound. And it was fully realized that a full album from these guys, you know, not venturing too far away from what you saw from that double A side a year prior was going to be successful. A lot of people, it's a misnomer, think that Run DMC was a Def Jam band because of the Russell Simmons connection and those type of things. They were actually on profile records, which, you know, obviously brought. Eric B and Rakim and DJ Quick and some other really strong artists uh, as part of that, you know, very prestigious record label there in the in the eighties. They actually weren't a Def Jam band, even though they were. They're often sort of coupled with the rise of that scene. The other thing that's a common mistake with Run DMC it goes along with what you just said is that Rick Rubin played like a key role in the development of their sound. And he did not. In, in fact, Rick Rubin has not played a key role in the development of any sounds. By all accounts, when he produces an album, he's he's very aloof and he's not very involved. And you know, he's probably one of the more overrated producers that there is in music. And a lot of people think he discovered Run DMC or you know no. created the sound. I mean, not at all. These three guys created the sound. And it was there long before Rick Rubin even had anything to do with it. Russell Simmons didn't even meet Rick Rubin until after Run DMC uh, sort of got their start. So, so certainly first priority for Russell Simmons was, you know, develop Run DMC as this act that's going to sort of change the scene. And then the Rick Rubin thing and the Def Jam Records thing and all that sort of came into play after that. One guy, though, that was tremendously important is a guy named Larry Smith. Now, Larry Smith produced Curtis Blow. He produced the Fat Boys, uh, which was another kind of big act on the East Coast around this time. And, and uh, a group called Orange Crush, which was actually Larry Smith's group. He was the producer of this record, eventually. And obviously was part of the scene through Orange Crush and through kind of the development of, of sort of his own sound. He was Russell Simmons' original business partner. He eventually left the scene kind of in the 90s. And that's when Russell Simmons kind of moved away from Larry Smith and, and created this partnership with Rick Rubin thereafter. One of the things that Smith really brought to the table here was this sort of heavy snare kick beat sound and movement, which was so pivotal for this album and for hip hop as a whole. And you hear it throughout this album like crazy. You know, this record was before walk this way and before which was a cover of an aerosmith song and obviously a gigantic deal for run dmc but the oberheim dmx which was the drum machine used on this record and this very stripped down approach of heavy snare and kick really drove this debut record and drove this you know very unique sound and larry smith 
has a lot to do with that as kind of the main producer. So Sucka MCs was the single. It preceded the record. Smith actually said he would have hired live performance on the entire album if he could. Now, budget didn't allow it. But it was a happy accident there because if they would have gotten too much live performance, this thing probably would have became a little bit more produced and a bit more layered and commercial. The stripped down nature of it um, ended up, I think, being part of its charm. Uh, Rockbox, which we'll get to, was the first rap video ever played on MTV in the summer of 1984. And, you know, with Run DMC in this debut album, a lot of hip hop historians kind of consider this a real sort of turning point. You know, there's kind of pre Run DMC and post in a lot of ways. And, and that's where this descriptor of the new school hip hop era really kind of, you know, comes into play nicely. So why don't we, because obviously this is a very interesting group, very prominent throughout our heyday as youngins. So Nubs, I am very interested in hearing your wondrous story with Run DMC. Let's do it. Nub, what do you got on these guys? Let's hear it. I mean, like most 40-something-year-olds, I mean, it truly is Walk This Way. You know, I, I'd, I'd love to say that, you know, I was following hip-hop closely enough to know that this album was as important as it was. And, you know, I think Walk This Way is off Raising Hell, which is, that's their third album? Second or it third was actually album the, the second record, the one right after this, yeah. Which was a multi part of the reason it was a multi platinum effort was because of that track. Yeah. And and that video was, was on and the the video was such a, the the song is obviously a really important song and, and and maybe hindsight is, has given it maybe a little more credit than it deserves. I remember hearing that it created a genre and hip hop and rock. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's true. I don't know, but it was a really played video it was on all the time and there was something sort of stunning about seeing steven tyler and joe perry together with you know the guys from run dmc so walk this way was was certainly the introduction to just what run dmc was and then they were they were very exposed at the time commercially i mean i remember commercials and and things like that when run dmc were in it selling products and i mean they were kind of all over the place in the mid to late 80s from a commercial perspective. So, you know, it would have been, you would have had to work a little hard if you were a kid that was into pop culture to, to miss Run DMC. You know, they're kind of everywhere. And fashion-wise, there was a huge influence. But yeah, musically, it was certainly a Walk This Way. And then, you know, I, I think you're, you probably have the same memories, but my first experiences with, with hip-hop were from our older brother, Scott, who was like side by side next to his Metallica and, and Megadeth cassettes was NWA and Eazy-E. And so I have to say that when your intro to hip hop is, is kind of that sound, Run DMC didn't feel as edgy to me. I remember thinking that it's like, oh, this is more like mainstream hip hop and NWA and Eazy-E are like really where it's at. And again, like I said earlier, this is all, you know, a, a white suburban kid 
experience. So that that's kind of where it was. It was walk this way and, and then realizing the importance uh, of the group. But honestly, you choosing this album was imp- a, a pretty interesting thing because I've never listened to it top to bottom. Oh, really? And yeah. Yeah. I really hadn't. And, and you do realize, and we'll get into it more in the track by track, but you do realize just how, you know, quintessential this album is to its genre and to its time. But yeah, it, it was, it was a pretty surfacey experience for me. Walk this way and then kind of rediscovering from there. So yeah, that, that's, that's kind of my, my more, my less wondrous story of the wonder <laughs> stories. So maybe yours is a little more wondrous. So how'd you get into run DMC in this first album? Well, it's hard to know, you know, what's more wondrous than the other, you know? Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, walk this way was just so enormous. Right. And uh, I mean, I, I can't even really listen to it today because you just heard so much of it as a, I mean, that came, that song came out when we were five or six. six and I mean, yeah. for, you know, for a decade plus, it was just such an anthem, you know, and you didn't even realize that it was originally an Aerosmith song. I mean, every, I, I bet, I bet 80% of people our age would probably say that that was a run DMC song that Aerosmith sort of appeared on. Right. Yeah. I, I would have been in that 80%. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're right. It, it's, it, it's, it's a great observation because I, I would not be able to listen to it now. I, I would find it very annoying. But at the time, you know, it was, it was very, very new and, and very fresh and very different. Well, and very important. I mean, th- there really hadn't been this fusion before. I mean, now you look back and I mean, the, you know, I, I don't know how many people remember, but there was a soundtrack to a movie called Judgment Day, which wasn't a great movie, but it was a, a pure partnership of rap acts and rock and metal acts. And they kind of came together and composed songs for the soundtrack. A very cool soundtrack, actually. Judgment Night, I think, isn't it? Or Judgment Night. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Judgment Night. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Day, night, you know what the hell. It's all the same. But no, um, it's a cool soundtrack. and, 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 you know, that was a little bit of a, I mean, that was 10 years later, but it was continuing this idea that these things can be sort of fused together. And that these partnerships within the rock slash metal and rap world can really produce some interesting stuff. And, and walk this way was the beginning of that. I mean, that was the first time you ever saw, um, a, a, a rock band, particularly a classic rock band as notable as Aerosmith partnering with, you know, kind of the pioneers of this new school hip hop genre on a cover of a rock and roll song that they clearly respected and knew. So. While it's become probably sort of tired from our standpoint because we grew up on it, it's a tremendously important partnership and song for kind of the growth of new school hip hop. My sort of foray into this genre really came from, and I mentioned earlier, there's a little bit of a misnomer that Run DMC was the Def Jam band, but I have the Def Jam 10th anniversary box set. Um, you know, uh, around the time of kind of the early to mid nineties and boy, I just wore it out. I mean, and, and this was, you know, everything from EPMD to, you know, Beastie Boys to LL Cool J. And I mean, some of these things that were really kind of important around that time. Now I got really heavy into this box set. It was a four CD box set and I just, you know, couldn't stop listening to it. And in some ways that actually bridged me to run DMC because 
you know, while they weren't on the Def Jam label, a lot of these things that were taking place all sort of stemmed from Run DMC and particularly their first couple records. So I kind of backed into it in a way of sort of starting with some of this more late 80s, early 90s Def Jam material and kind of realizing the important influence that Run DMC had on it. I, I worked at a, uh, when I was uh, in high school, I spent a summer working at a pizza place. I was a delivery driver. And uh, part of what was cool is you kind of hang out with some older people. You know, you're I'm a dumb high school kid and you kind of start palling around with some of the, you know, store managers and some of the kind of older people and, and becoming buddies and then hanging out. So I remember one night, I don't, I don't know if I'd really call it working tea. Yeah. Well, fair enough. But you know, one night, uh, we, you know, we, our shift ended and, and a bunch of guys were playing poker, you know, and, uh, over at this dude's apartment and it was kind of cool. These guys were like older and they were of drinking age and everything. And it's like, yeah, they invited me to come hang out. And I was like, sure, I'm this dumbass 17 year old, but I'll come hang out, you know? And, and we were over there kind of, I was like pretending like I knew how to play poker and all this stuff. And I was just mesmerized by what they were playing because they had the speakers going and they were playing some jams. And it's like, what is this? This is so good. And the guy was like, I mean, duh, this is run DMC. This is their first album. And like, really, man, I, I think I need to own this. Cause I mean, there's just something very captivating about the sound. If you, you know, kind of, kind of hadn't been familiar with it to that point, but you had a little bit of appreciation for some of this old school rap, which I'm a huge fan of. And I remember that that was the first time I actually heard Rockbox, which we'll get to it, uh, it, it, it hit me, you know, it was one of those punch to the gut type tracks. It was like, this is really good and really interesting. And I got to find out more about this. And from there it was, you know, go out and pick up this album and then go out and pick up a couple others from their catalog. And you start to get a real appreciation for what these guys were and what these guys brought to the table. So on that note, the first thing they brought to the table was this 1983 debut record and nubs. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go track by track. Why don't we go ahead and do it? Well, you know, some people probably popped this in, you know, back in the day and didn't know what to expect. Maybe knew they were going to get something a little different. Maybe knew they were going to get something a little bit unique. But I think whether you listen to this album, like in my case, for the first time in 1998, or if you were to pop this in 15 years prior upon its release, you know, right away with the kind of sound of the drum beat. Uh, the the style of the kind of rap and rhyme approach, uh, you had to know pretty early that you were getting something pretty unique and pretty special. And we get that right away on track number one, which is Hard Times. So you got that 
Backbeat, you got that snare and kick sound with not a lot of looping, not a lot of melody. People must have known Nub that right away they were getting something pretty unique and different here with Hard Times, huh? It just cuts so sharply. You know, I think you nailed it earlier. This is a tremendous rhythm section album. And yes, the rhythms are not necessarily being played by human beings on instruments. But let that not take away from just the power of the rhythm section, the drum and low end bass or or the drum and low end sampling that's going on here. It's it's cohesive. It's you know, really driving. And you know what? It's loud. And that's the thing. When you go back and listen to some of the predecessors, and I really enjoy some of the old school hip hop, but it's not really made for radio. Right. It doesn't sound, you know, real thick coming out of a, a speaker. Think about what this sounded like coming out of a boom box, you know, on a street corner in 1984. I mean, just the power of it uh, was, was something that was you know, was so impactful on those who heard it. And, you know, some of the melodies work better than others. I mean, even kind of the hard times thing here, you know, it gets a little repetitive. And (laughs) (laughs) and by the end of it, you're kind of like, okay, I get it. But again, don't let that take away from the statement that's being made here just from a pure rhythmic standpoint. And it's a, it's a powerful statement for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Great way to kick it off. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting the feel right away. You know that, and and the album cover is great too. I mean, it's it. Jam Master Jay's not even on it, but it's it's the two guys, and they're just kind of standing against a brick wall, and you know it says Run DMC at the top. I mean, it's the, even the cover is stripped down. But you know, you dig into hard times there. You know, about four minutes coming out of the gate, you realize that this is not something that's gonna be necessarily flashy or something that you're you've been necessarily hearing at the club or at the disco. But it's something that's, you know, coming at you with some power to your point. And boy, speaking of power, I, I, I love where we go here with track two, uh, with just an absolute classic in that being uh, that being rock box. Now, a lot of people, you know, will think that, um, you know, that this is kind of uh, comparable or similar to what you heard from Walk This Way or what you've kind of eventually started to hear with this rap rock genre. But let's remember something here in 1984. This wasn't happening. This wasn't happening. This fusion of guitar and guitar solo, this sort of tug of war rap you know, style taking place over it. This was not a thing yet. Rockbox was a truly pioneering hybrid of rock and roll and rap. A really, really important track. And and credit to the guys because actually it's kind of funny. They're, they were recording in a studio called Green Street in New York City and there was this random punk band next door called Riot. And, and the guys, um, Russell Simmons remembers the guys kind of hearing them in the studio next door and sort of saying, man, those loud guitars are sweet. Like we want to do some loud stuff. 
you know, actually they said, we want, we can make loud shit too, was the exact quote. But, uh, you know, they kind of went to the, you know, some of the producers here at, at Green Street and kind of said, we want to truly kind of do a rock and hip hop crossover, you know, and we think we've got a good riff and a good approach to do it. And at this time, I mean, even their producer, even Smith was like, you're out of your mind. Like, you really think you're going to do this? You really think you're going to truly kind of create this crossover? And boy, did they. Boy, did they. I mean, they recruited uh, Eddie Martinez, uh, who is kind of one of the best, you know, um, he was a Hispanic, extraordinary guitar player who was, you know, from Hollis, Queens. He was from the same town as these guys to play the guitar part and the solo on Rockbox and lay down that guitar part. You know, Nubs, this is, I mean, obviously there are a couple tracks that really stand out for Run DMC. This has got to be one of their more renowned and one of their more respected tracks for everything that it did. But, you know, I mean, Eddie Martinez, I mean, this is comparable to Eddie Van Halen playing guitar for Michael Jackson, you know, to kind of bring that skill to, you know, not only certainly a group and a record, but an entire genre that had never really experienced this true hybrid of rock and rap, bringing that to this track too, and kind of hitting you over the head right away with it. You're on rock box, pretty big deal at the time. So I, I always assumed that this was sampled. You're telling me this is not sampled. This is songwriting. This is songwriting. Basically. This was written. Yeah. In fact, the... In fact, it's interesting. The songwriting credit on Rockbox goes to Daryl, Joe Simmons, and the producer, Larry Smith. That's it. That's it. So yeah, it's, it's really pretty fascinating that, and cause that was my first thought too. Same as you. It was kind of like, boy, where did they lift that riff from? Yeah. They I, wrote I, that. I certainly they, didn't think it was live guitar. They wrote that. Yeah. Uh, that, that says a lot. And that gets into kind of, again, the songwriting aspect, but it just, two things come to mind when I hear this song. Number one is, is this on our pre-show playlist? Oh, 100% this is on our uh, inter- intermission yeah. playlist, of course. Our intermission <laughs> playlist, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't remember if it was pre-show or intermission, but I'm always hearing this at, at our gigs. So that always, you know, th- that came up when I heard it. But the other thing, too, is, man, these guys must have been so sick of people ripping them off for the ensuing 10, 15 years. And the one that comes up to mind is License to Ill. You know, this song clearly set up basically the blueprint that the Beastie Boys would follow with License to Ill and probably to an extent Paul's Boutique. But uh, this song almost sounds like if you told me it was an outtake from License to Ill, even the to me, there's no comparison between the Run DMC guys' skills with the microphones versus the Beastie Boys. And I'm saying that there's an advantage to DMC. But uh, if you told me this was an outtake, I would believe you because even the delivery of the vocals sounds like Beastie Boys. This sounds like something that Ad Rock and MCA could have done. They were doing it, though, literally two years after this came out, and they were clearly influenced, but they also obviously were purely lifting from Run DMC. I mean, ripping off their sound entirely. And so you, you got to credit Run DMC for, through the years, 
I think they've embraced their role and they never seemingly got too upset about people just blatantly ripping off their sound, but boy, did it happen. Yeah. Incredibly influential. I mean, this, again, this, this hybrid approach just really hadn't happened to this point influenced a huge amount of music that would come thereafter. I agree with you on some of that, you know, Rick Rubin, um, licensed to ill era beastie boy stuff. And certainly it was Rockbox was the first song to catch my attention. You know, during the wonder stories, I talked about the poker night. This was the one that really made me turn my head and say, who is this? And how do I get my hands on this track three, a tribute to one of their own. This one's called jam master J. He So this one obviously is a little, you know, probably less minimalist than anything else you'd hear on the album with a lot of scratch and a lot of those type of things going on. But listen, as you said, from the onset nubs, I mean, Jam Master J, a tremendous um, kind of addition. I mean, Run DMC wouldn't be what it is if it weren't for kind of the combination of this entire trio. And it's kind of cool to hear the, the two vocalists here, you know, kind of giving some homage to their uh, beloved uh, Jam Master J, who really kind of took him to a new level. So kind of a nice thing on track three here. Well, they they sort of invented the shout out song, which is a key part of hip hop albums. Yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, name me another hip hop album that came out that didn't have like the shout out song. And so they're shouting out their boy, you know, and that, hey, that, that works. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's cool. You know, I, I, I love when hip hop artists just decide to like, make a song about one person, you know, and like just totally, you know, just like spend three minutes to about how great they are and stuff. I, I just love that. I think it, I think that speaks to the, a lot of the positives of, of the culture of hip hop, hip hop. Yeah, totally. And again, it's just so authentic, you know, I mean, it's that this isn't, you know, faux credit or faux praise for, you know, for their, uh, their DJ. This is something that you can just tell is very real and very authentic and, and it's good stuff. Let's well, get in. You know, I, I, I think that we should experiment with this just a little bit. I don't know if, you, if you're able to pull up any hip hop beat, just anything. It doesn't matter what it is. I, maybe I should just do like a little shout out to, Oh T-Sing. God. Well, I mean, I'd be, I'd be honored. Um, you know, I mean, let's just, I mean, because part of this whole thing is just just write a song about really just how great your oh, buddy man. is. Oh you know? I mean, are, are you willing to do I that? I mean, let's, well, hey, let's give it let's a shot. I don't know. Oh yeah, how's this? Is this good? Sure. Yeah, All right. Well, good. I mean, shoot, I fire when ready. Uh, I love tea. He's so funny. He's the man who makes two twins and Elm happen. Oh, I love T. He's the man. T, T, T. He knows so much about music. He knows so much about other things. You got to give it up for T, the man. T, T, T. Everybody, T. Everybody, T. Everybody, T, T, T. Yeah, man. Wow. Just like, you know, just give me a love wow. tea. You that, know? I, I'm tearing up a little bit. Yeah, man. That's my tea shout out song. 
I mean, I would feel kind of like a schmuck if I didn't give one back, right? I mean, isn't that part of it? You got to sort of do the, you know? Let me tell you about Nubs. He knows his stuff. He brings it every episode on QTTA. Two twins and an album. Yeah, that's what it is. He likes prog. Smog, he ain't smug. Let's go, nubs. Let's get back to episode 33, where we're talking about our rap boys, about our rhyme boys, about our run DMC boys. Here we go, track four. <laughs> wow. Just blowing mine out of the water. That was like that was like legit rhymes there, T. That's very impressive stuff. I'm going to regroup here. This is track. I just want to make sure if anyone even thinks we planned that. Oh, in any way, shape or form there. I would hope that you could tell that we didn't plan that (laughs) whatsoever. Track four, Hollis crew crush group two. So Larry Smith that, you know, I mentioned earlier, he, he had a group called Orange Crush and he brought four beats um, to Run DMC. Uh, and, and obviously this is, that's where Crush Groove comes from. So this is Crush Groove 2, which became the, the track Hollis Crew. The following track is Crush Groove 1, which is Sucker MCs, which obviously, you know, we'll get to next. Crush Groove 3 is a song called Daryl and Joe, and 4 is a song called Together Forever. Those are both on King of Rock. So you're kind of getting two of these uh, Orange Crush beats that the producer brought to the to the group, and, and they put this track uh, called Hollis Crew uh, over it. So we kind of have Crush Groove 2, and then we're, we'll, it'll be followed by Crush Groove 1 here. Nubs, any thoughts on Hollis Crew? Well, first of all, it's like Run DMC. They're they're making close to the edge now. You know, you got <laughs> different parts and merged parts yeah. and section one and section two. So way to go, boys! Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. You know, I I think that uh, you you cannot overstate the importance of you know the production of this album for sure. And Larry Smith, you know, while not technically one of the three members certainly should be seen as such in on this particular album. And it's a, it's an example of the right producer at the right time. And and he brought a lot of things to the table that enhanced what the three guys had already established. And they had established a lot as we've talked about, but Larry Smith, again, just, just took the whole thing. And I think made it something that we're still talking about decades later. And without his presence there, I, I'm not sure that would have happened. The next two tracks really make up that A side that had come out a year before this record and really paved the way for it. This is Sucker MCs, also known as Crush Groove One. Daryl really just killing it right there. I mean, (laughs) I mean, that's a very famous line and this is a very famous, um, you know, sort of beloved and renowned track from these guys. Obviously this is the one that really started it. You know, I mentioned earlier, 5 million copies of this 
basically this double A side led by Sucker MCs is really what got Run DMC on the map initially. So I believe this rounds out side one of the record. Sucker MC is probably to this day one of the more beloved uh, and, and one of the more important uh, Run DMC tracks out there. Yeah, when you end side one with Sucker MCs and then and begin side two with what has to be one of the most famous beats of all time and well deservedly so, it's pretty solid little back to back there. Yeah, many would certainly, you know, it's always easy to kind of note the beginning of a record as kind of one that catches your attention and one that's memorable. But boy, you're right. This back to back piece of rounding outside one with sucker MCs and then getting to the beginning of side two with certainly one of their most well-known tracks. It's like that. So this really defines uh, many things. First and foremost, this, you know, tug of war rap style, you know, between Jay and Daryl, you know, they're really kind of getting that back and forth thing going, which up to this point really hadn't been utilized very much. You know, it was more about kind of the single voice or sort of you take a verse, I'll take a verse, but this intraverse tug of war was not something that you heard of a lot. And it's like that is a, is a whole new sort of element of that from a style standpoint. A lot of people think this is the first new school hip hop recording. So again, this was part of the double A side that came out before the record. So it's like that is judged by many to be the first new school track, the first hardcore rap song, uh, by a lot of people. And you know, this was this track lyrically is really kind of about life sort of in this area of Hollis. You know, they're talking about unemployment. They're talking about death and people kind of getting into sort of the drug scene. And they're talking about, you know, the, the sort of inability to kind of deal with some of these um, social and political problems. It's a little bit of a protest tune uh, as far as what's being kind of communicated. and. But it takes on this sort of hopeful message and it's encouraging listeners to kind of, you know, believe in themselves and try and sort of come out of some of these areas where they may feel a little bit, you know, like there's no way out and those type of things. It's a, it's a very important track. I think if you, if many rap historians and hip hop historians were kind of to note, you know, probably the top handful of really, really important songs within the genre. I think for all those reasons combined, the message, the lyrical content, the style, uh, and sort of what it meant to kind of introduce this idea of new school, it's like that is going to be high on the list of, of many critics and many historians. Yeah, it's like this and White Lines by Melly Mel, you know. Grandmaster Flash, The Message, Sugar Hill Gang. What was the big Sugar Hill Gang song? Uh, they had Auburn. Rapper's Delight and Apache. Rapper's Delight. Uh, yeah, Rapper's Delight. Rough. Yeah. I mean, you, that's like, it's like the Mount Rushmore of hip hop songs. And it's like that should be on there. I, you know, I was working at a, a record store the year that this was 
re-released the Jason Nevins version. I think it was under the name Jason Nevins versus Run DMC or maybe yes. it was the other way around. Huge, huge and track. Every day we would have, you know, 20 people come in wanting to buy that single. We had to special order that so much because yeah. it was huge uh, overseas too. And so like people got hip to it. And the the CD single of it was so popular. I mean, I remember selling more of those than anything else that whole summer and that whole year that that came out. And I have to admit, I like the the Nevins version better, um, much better than this original album version. But I appreciate the original album's version. But what Jason Nevins did to it's like that is is pretty awesome. It was a big deal. It was a, that was a extremely, to your point, worldwide hit. I mean, oh, it was gigantic. Very, very popular track. Yeah. And that's, that's funny that you were, I know that you mentioned uh, in an earlier episode that Titanic was a big deal. And was the other one you mentioned, was it the uh, Goodbye England's Rose? I think you had yes. mentioned that too. Yeah. Yep. That was the first record shop yeah. that was that yeah. summer. So it's interesting we, that this would even sort of rank, I mean, even in, would you say it was in your kind of top handful of, uh, of kind of big trends and fads that you saw from a, uh, from an interest standpoint or from a, even sort of a, a, a single track standpoint that was being sought out easily, easily. Yeah. I mean, the summer before was, we couldn't keep enough of the Elton John singles on the shelf. And the following summer, it was everyone wanted Run DMC versus Jason Nevins. It's like that. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's it's got a, a special place in that sense, too. But yeah, it's interesting, too, is the same store where we did the Titanic midnight sale. And the, the line literally was like a mile long down the street. <laughs> so it, it's kind of a sign of the times. In the late 90s, things were so eclectic that it was the summer of both one of the most ridiculous movies ever made and this amazing hit single that was a throwback to something that had come out, you know, basically 13 years before. So welcome to the late nineties, I guess. Well, you're trying to say that Titanic was a ridiculous movie. I mean, let's, yes. I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I know you get a little verklempt when you watch no, it. Don't you? No, I, I think it Never. sucks. I think it sucks. Uh, <laughs> track seven is Wake Up. To show our faces. It was cool to chill in foreign places. It was a dream. Just a dream. I mean, see, that that is like, that's rhythm section. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. You know, bass drum bass guitar or bass synth or whatever together locked in. I mean, there's such strong rhythm section elements. It's just so big. You know, I, I love wake up. I think it's awesome, but uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how much mileage they were able to get out of, in many cases, the simplicity of these beats. And a lot of that has to do with the vocal treatment, right? I mean, the, the rap style of these guys and this tug of war style, I mean, was very effective. And it was such a unique thing at the time that I mean, now you've heard, you hear it all the time, but you know, what you just heard during that particular clip, I mean, that just wasn't happening. You know, it was all verse based and now it's, you know, based on kind of the feel and sort of the back and forth and the call and answer of, of some of these, um, kind of approaches, even within the same verse and within the same line. And 
you know, wake up's a great example that I think this track's awesome. Uh, track eight, and we've got two left. Um, actually this is kind of the last, you know, kind of full tune of the record before we get into kind of what is a little bit more of an outro and yet another, uh, you know, sort of tribute and uh, showcase of the DJ. This is a uh, track eight. This is called 30 days. just a great example of, of just, again, more of just what you weren't hearing at the time. Right. I mean, in, 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 listen, Grandmaster Flash, phenomenal, right? I mean, Curtis Blow, huge fan. I mean, all that stuff is really important, but this was just a sound and a, and a style that just, you weren't getting at this time. And one that didn't have to be intricate, didn't have to be complex, but you know, 30 days, great way to wrap up. Uh, again, the, the final track is a little bit more of a showcase of the DJ. So what do you think of kind of the last, I would say true track here and it's almost six minutes. I mean, this thing's got some, got some life to it. Dare I say it a little proggy here at the end <laughs> yeah. of the record, uh, on 30 days, but what do you think of this one nub as we kind of wrap up almost? I love 30 days. I love the synthesizer. It's got Larry Smith's fingerprints. All over it, you know, he's accomplished in the for the drum box and his synthesizer, and and it's all over it, right? But the ding, 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 you know, it's just like the nice little quarter note kind of pulse thing that's going on there. But, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there, there's some there's some like true dynamics going on in this song too. You know, some layering, just some things that you don't normally associate with hip hop music. I mean, it, you know, if only hip hop could have stayed this musical over the time. You know, it would have been fascinating to see where it really went, but it got so aligned with, with image and media. I, I feel like the, the focus didn't stay like exclusively on the music until maybe outcast came along. And that was just, you know, that outcast was as groundbreaking in my opinion, as run DMC was in a number of ways <laughs> because they focused on the music and, and that that's the running kind of, comparison between the two but um yeah i love the dynamics i love the synthesizer stuff i mean it's kind of just catchy kind of good you know i mean you kind of nailed it early on when you talked about the way that this group crossed over more almost into a pop place i mean yes it's hip-hop music no doubt about it it's also pretty damn poppy yeah you know and 30 days is a good example of that. i like the outcast comparison and part of why i like it is you know just like outcast run dmc i mean just could have cared less about genres in fact let's break all that shit down right let's 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 establish things that are either combining things that have never been combined before or exploring kind of a new sound within something that we think is either possibly stale or or has a lot of opportunity for evolution i mean they just didn't care it's kind of like yeah it doesn't matter what you call this. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that we want a track with guitars. It doesn't matter that we want a track with kind of this you know, more sort of synth driven melody to it. Like we had in 30 days. I mean, they just, all they really cared about was creating something unique and creating something that, you know, took some gambles, a lot of gambles on this record. This was not, yeah. this yeah. was not one where it's like formulaic by any means. This was extremely authentic. 
and in some ways rolling the dice a little bit. Now, by this time, they had the double A side of Sucker M season. It's like that. And they knew, I think they knew they had a winner. But around that time, you know, as they were producing this and as they were pulling this sound together, I don't think it was a sure thing by any means. Same is true with Outcast with the gangster rap thing. You know, Outcast really capitalized on the this sort of harder edge and harder image of gangster mm-hmm. rap, which resulted in less musicality. It did. And it doesn't mean, I mean, there are amazing works that came out of yeah. that era. And I lo- that's probably my favorite era of hip hop music, to be honest with you. But Outkast certainly capitalized on a feeling that it had all gotten just a little too rigid, right? And, and it had gotten a little too had to be a certain way. And they came along and said, no, it actually doesn't have to be a certain way. In fact, it can break all the rules. Great point. Let's round this sucker out here with uh, track nine, Jay's Game. So obviously, you know, a, a sad ending with, with Jay Master Jay, obviously, you know, in 2002, um, he was shot and killed. Kind of a strange circumstance it sounds like something drug related and something that you know was very shocking to people and that this very important very influential hip-hop figure that seemed to get kind of caught up in something kind of stupid and and uh, ended up paying the price for it and his life was cut way too short at uh, at age 37 you know back in 2002 um but, you know, one of the great things about this record is, again, we, we highlighted it on track three. We get it again here on Jay's Game is just this very authentic, you know, appreciation for uh, their DJ, who obviously they would continue to make some great records with uh, as a trio. But cool way to round this one out with with Jay's Game. And it's nice that they kind of round out their debut album with this sort of showcase of uh, Jay Master Jay's skill. So that rounds us out. Nine tracks, a very efficient effort, I must say. And, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know how difficult this question is or not. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, Can we just both say it at the same time? <laughs> you know, yes. Well, I guess it's not, did it matter? It's how much did it matter in your view, Nub? A ton. Yeah, a ton. I mean, it, it, should be and is seen as a cornerstone. You know, we talked about kind of Mount Rushmore of hip hop songs. Well, the Mount Rushmore of hip hop albums, some might say Raising Hell. Many might say this album, but either way, Run DMC should be on it. And I think it gets back to just the art form and the artistic statement. You know, you've mentioned it in a couple of different ways. What they were doing here was it ended up becoming commercial, but it came from a a really heartfelt and and very real place. And it's a great example of, you know, just follow your instincts when you're an artist. You know, I'm, I'm reading Woody Allen's autobiography right now, and it's amazing how simple he is in his analysis of art. Yeah. He's like, do what you want. Don't let people tell you how to do it. And if people like it, great. And if you're able to make a living off it, isn't that wonderful? And if people don't like it, who cares? You know, you you really do just need to create for yourself. 
and it, it's inspiring in its complete simplicity. And I would say that's a good way of describing the importance of this album. It's inspiring in its simplicity. And it really does feel like three guys just truly following their passion and following their, their minds and their hearts to create something, you know, that'll last forever. And so, you know, of course it's important. I mean, I don't know. How would you package it? Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, uh, you know, last week when we were talking about Kid A, which is a slightly different album. Um, than, oh, let me get today's. my synthesizer on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's actually still sitting right here, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, part of part of my big gripe about it was that it didn't feel authentic. It felt like a band that was trying to be different for the sake of being different and trying to, you know, be uh, unmelodic for the sake of being unmelodic. And you kind of question the intention of why they're trying to do something different and try and do something unique. You don't question that here. You know, this is, these are guys that were staying true to what they were seeing at the hip hop parties, what they were seeing kind of on the street in Hollis. And in a lot of ways, it's, I think what makes it very special is it's sort of a tribute and they never denied that they were always very upfront and very genuine in saying we didn't invent anything crazy. We didn't pioneer anything. We're just doing kind of some of the things that we've seen around and staying true to it, which they did realize. And Russell Simmons realized and Larry Smith probably to an extent realized that no one had ever been able to properly capture on tape at that point. And I think the, the, the really great thing about run DMC's debut record is it really did capture not just that genre, not just that time, but that authentic you know, sort of graciousness and, and tribute in a lot of ways to their immediate influences, which many will have never released an album. Many will have never played in an arena. Many will have never signed a, uh, an endorsement deal with Adidas or any of those things that Run DMC eventually did, but they genuinely and authentically um, were able to kind of take this very direct street influence and represent it properly. And I think that's the one thing that really landed with not just a commercial audience, but certainly a hardcore hip hop audience at that time in establishing this new school era. So Nubs, the final cut is this on the turntable in the collection, collecting dust, or are you selling it and putting it in that for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? What I got is... Oh no, it's Kid B. <laughs> oh no. The return of Kid B. Oh no. I've got Run DMC in the collection. And uh it should be in one's collection. It's a great musical work. It's a truly great piece of music. But, you know, not one that I listen to top to bottom frequently or even regularly. But, you know, if you if you want to have a good collection, you want to have the canon of all genres. To me, this is in there. And, and I would put it above Raising Hell, even though I think Raising Hell is a, you know, a, another landmark important album. But, you know, you don't get Raising Hell without this one, right? So I, I think you always, 
revert to the original if need be. So I've got it in the collection. T, where do you got it? I have it collecting dust and that in no way, um, you know, sort of dilutes or disputes the importance of it. Um, you know, part of the reason I selected it is because it's just tremendously influential and, and a, a very huge deal in, in truly establishing a, a new wave uh, and sort of a new approach to this hip hop genre in the early 80s, doing things that had never been done before. You know, I think it just, I think it holds up okay. You know, I think that there are, moments that are really really strong i mean rock box to this day is a very very important track you know sucker mcs it's like that these are classics i mean these are songs that are tremendously important to hip-hop as far as all nine tracks you know i think it's pretty good i think there are some ebbs and flows within i don't know that i'm going to always be compelled to kind of pop it in and go top to bottom you know track one through track nine um, in, in, in all sittings and in all cases. So, you know, not to take anything away whatsoever from how great this record is or how important it is, because I think we've certainly noted that enough, but it's collecting dust just in that. I think you should own it as far as going top to bottom on it regularly, you know, probably not as much for me, maybe one of those that you spin, you know, once or twice a year, but, um, beyond that, you're just kind of picking a couple of the really memorable, really influential tracks and kind of going from there. So I've got a collecting dust. Well, that's a wrap on run DMC's debut album. Let's cool down. Let's cool our jets a little bit here. Nubs with a little bit of in your They're still fighting. Ah, what do you got, Buckaroo? First for me is the song Weightless by Thomas Dolby off the Golden Age Ooh. of Wireless album. So this is the album with, you know, his main hit. Incredible album. And Weightless is a, you know, killer song that always stands out because it contains the lyrics, fruit juice everywhere. And I'll leave it right there. You should check it out. It's worth it. Uh, second would be uh, a dream theater song off awake uh, caught in a web. The second track on the 1994 awake album, kind of everything good about dream theater when they really rocked out, kept things a little more simple than they eventually did later in their career. And third, and the song far and away that I've listened to the most this week is a new song, uh, bring out your dead by of course, Jason Beeler uh, off his really incredible new album. I mean, I, you know, so far I would say clubhouse leader, it's very young and very early in 2021, but clubhouse leader for album of the year and bring out your dead is, uh, again, up front in the album. And it features a guitar solo from Devin Townsend. Um, and it, it you know, it, to me, it's, it's probably the best song in the album. And that says a lot because I think the record is fantastic. So We've talked about it before, you know, Jason Beeler is one of those artists that people should support and check out because he, he's really, truly made a career album, in my opinion. And that track uh, is about as good as it gets. So that's what's in my head, T. What is in your head? Well, the first one, you know, we have a very special listener uh, overseas uh, out in uh, the country of Spain. And uh, that's a Spencer San. And uh, I'm going to give it up to him on my first in your head track, which is the graduation song uh, Friends Forever by Vitamin C. Um, <laughs> you know, just a just a great track there brings back a lot of good, good memories. And I'm sure for a lot of people, uh, 
you know, makes them think of, you know, wearing that cap and gown and, you know, walking down through that ceremony and getting that diploma and God, vitamin C just captures it. It makes me think of you and Spencer son singing it uh, at like three in the morning. Yeah. uh, Sometime in the early 2000s. Just being morons. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, shout out to. To Chad Spencer out there. Hey, uh, the second one, I've got a little, little 80s love ballad by uh, Stacey Latishaw. This is a Let Me Be Your Angel. Uh, just a, you know, great 80s love ballad. You know, big fan from that uh, sort of 80s R&B genre there. You're and digging deep right now. Do you like you that? Vitamin C and uh, what is it? Stacey Latishaw? And I'm really going to throw you for a loop on this one. This is Phil Manley's band. This is the Trans Am and Effing Am and yeah. all those. And a huge Phil Manley fan, a big fan of all his projects. He's got a project uh, uh, called uh, Terry Gross. And uh, they're doing some sort of long jam stuff. You'd like it. It's a little proggy, a little out there. Uh, there's a there's a jam. It's about 17 minutes called Quarantine Dream that I've been really digging lately. Terry Gross. Um, a, a really just yet another awesome project from, you know, Phil Manley, who everything he's been a part of has nonetheless been interesting. So I've been really digging into quarantine dream quite a bit lately. Nub, uh, thank you very much for, uh, kind of plowing through this one here. Obviously a very important, very influential group record. And uh, I hope you enjoyed talking about Run DMC's 1984 debut uh, as much as I did, buddy. And don't forget the hidden track, which is T, 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 yeah, yeah, T, 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. Sweeping the nation. If that one was actually on the, I'd put it on the turntable if that one was actually on the record. But, uh. Good choice, man. It was fun. Well, appreciate it very much. And that's a wrap on episode 33. We will be back soon for episode 34 here on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care out there and be good. We'll see you soon. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.